Hello, I'm Juliet Jakes, welcoming you back to the Suite 212 sessions. As those of you who've listened to previous episodes will know, our plan to relaunch Suite 212 as a fortnightly show with alternating free and subscriber-only episodes were put on hold by the coronavirus epidemic, which has brought much of the United Kingdom's cultural life to a standstill. Instead, I'm recording a series of interviews with contemporary artists, writers, filmmakers and others about their work, conducted via Skype. So apologies in advance for the diminished audio quality. And more spontaneous than our usual output. The idea is to give a snapshot of the arts in the United Kingdom and beyond in the 21st century through individual conversations with people about their work, seeing which political concerns engage them, and how the socio-economic conditions of the time have affected their practices. All of these will be made available for free via SoundCloud, but I'd still encourage you to subscribe at patreon.com slash sweet212 as I take time to plan and record. You can also make a one-off donation at donorbox.org slash sweet-212. Today, I'm talking to artist filmmaker John Smith, who was born in Walthamstow in London in 1952. He studied at Northeast London Polytechnic and the Royal College of Art, after which he became an active member of the London Filmmakers Co-op. Inspired in his formative years by conceptual art and structural film, but also fascinated by the immersive power of narrative and the spoken word, he's developed an extensive body of work that subverts the perceived boundaries between documentary and fiction, representation and abstraction. Often rooted in everyday life, his meticulously crafted films playfully explore and expose the language of cinema. Since 1972, Smith has made over 60 film, video and installation works that have been shown at independent cinemas, art galleries and on television around the world and have won major prizes at numerous international film festivals. He received a Paul Hamlin Foundation Award for Artists in 2011 and won Film London's German Award in 2013. So John, welcome to Suite 212. Hello, thank you for inviting me. Well, it's nice to see you again, even virtually speaking. The, uh, the last time we saw each other in the flesh, of course, was on a cold, I think, December or possibly late November lunchtime in Hackney, where the two of us had volunteered to a wildly oversubscribed data entry session at Hackney South and Shoreditch Labour Office. And having finished all of our data entry work, we got given some leaflets to take out onto the high street, which... I think turned out to be a pointless endeavour on just about every level. We were largely ignored or actively sort of told not to approach people for the most part. And several of the people who took the leaflet said, why are you bothering to canvas here? Like label win by landslide, which of course they did, but the rest of the country, yeah, well, not so much. And I think actually we ended up spending a more productive time just going to a greasy spoon cafe and having lunch together and yeah, that uh, was the most pleasurable part of the. Uh, of that, that, <laughs> but uh, that being said, it was a lot more pleasurable leafleting in Hackney, although pointless, as you say, than uh, actually the other two efforts that I made, which were canvassing in Milton Keynes and Thurrock, which were very, very depressing. <laughs> a friend of mine was focusing his efforts in Thurrock and he came back and said, Yeah, this is terrible. Everyone's a fascist. <laughs> And uh, that was borne out in the result. And of course, the government that we got off the back of it, which a lot of the very sensible people who spent five years telling everyone not to vote for Corbyn are now pretending that they couldn't have predicted would be an absolute disaster. And you have made a film responding to the government's 
communications around COVID-19 in particular, which have been, I think, sort of clownish and chaotic, often contradictory. It's hard to tell whether that's intentional or not. You know, the famous Napoleonic line about malice and incompetence. And I think they're at the point where it's impossible to tell whether it's malice or incompetence. It kind of doesn't matter. But the Conservatives, in my opinion, won that election in part by trashing the entire public sphere, you know, allowing the media to do that themselves, but also quite willingly doing it themselves. I'm working on a very long piece at the moment, which looks at a lot of the lies that the Conservatives told about Labour and the basic aim in that election campaign, once they realised that they couldn't turn Johnson into this popular hero, was to basically make the whole of the public sphere unusable, pretty much, you know, lying about Labour's spending promises, throwing out these absurd figures like there'll be 52 extra murders a year, I think Priti Patel was telling people. We could list these all day, but obviously when the coronavirus crisis came around, the government needed clear communication through trusted channels delivered by people who were respected. And they didn't have any of those things, really. And, you know, your new film looks at some of the early public information that was given out by Boris Johnson and sort of highlights the absurdity of it. So maybe you could describe the film for our listeners and like why you made it. Yes, of course. It's a very simple, very short film. It's only two and a half minutes. But it's based on the government advice that we should, whilst washing our hands, sing happy birthday and wash our hands for the amount of time that it takes to sing happy birthday twice. And when I first heard this, I thought, did I hear that correctly? My sense of reality has been completely distorted over recent months, you know, I've been, well, a, a lot a lot longer than recent months actually but it gets worse and worse and every day one hears something i think i must be imagining this the world cannot be this you know but anyway i was really struck by this thing of singing happy birthday one because it's so inappropriate to sing happy birthday when you're dealing with such a serious matter but also the time it takes to sing happy birthday twice why couldn't they think of a song that you only have to sing once you know i did see a horrific little passing shot with Rhys Moore where he suggested that people should sing the national anthem while they're washing their hands so at least we've escaped that one but anyway I, I thought I would you know being a law-abiding citizen I thought I would follow government advice and make a sort of little government an instructional film so the first part of the film is me washing hand, my hands and singing happy birthday twice but I sing it not to the tune of happy birthday but to the tune of the funeral march which seemed to be a much more appropriate and somber way of dealing with the very poor advice that we were getting from the government. Uh, the second part of the film is just a little fragment from a speech that Johnson made I think on March the 3rd when the coronavirus was already rife over a very large part of the world where he said very important wash your hands twice to the tune of happy birthday but let me stress, at this time, people should carry on with their business as usual. And I was reading yesterday that basically that was on the Tory website and they've cropped that bit from the end of an interview that he did with Laura Kunzberg when he said that. Unless Laura Kunzberg advised them that they should crop it, being on the, as she had, seems to be very much on their side. But um, anyway, that's, a, that's another story. So it's a very simple, uh, simple little video piece, which, uh, but it response to the situation and uh, like a lot of my work I hope it's 
humorous and also horrific simultaneously, a combination that I quite, um, I find quite effective. I mean, yes, I mean, I found the piece very funny and it's certainly true that the only context in which I can bear to hear Johnson speak or look at him is when it's framed by somebody on the left. So I've only been watching Boris Johnson's speeches when they've been presented as part of Navarra Media's coronavirus <laughs> coverage, for example. But yeah, there's been this dizzying array of different people coming out to deliver information, <laughs> partly because all the Tory figureheads who emerged during the Johnson cabinet before the and during the election were so like catastrophically clownish that nobody would listen to them. Hence mm -hmm. putting up people like Rishi Sunak and Alok Sharma a lot more than say Priti Patel or Jacob Rees-Mogg, who hasn't really been allowed out of his box since right. blaming the Grenfell victims for dying at the tower. I understand you've been working on some other projects related to COVID-19 during this lockdown. So I wonder if you'd like to tell our listeners about those. Yeah, the, the piece that I'm working on at the moment, which is um, it's a lot more substantial than the one I've just talked about. And it's something that I actually started before any of this, this happened. Like a lot of my ideas, it originally came out of some visual ideas, something to do with aesthetics, because I've always been fascinated by the, I've lived in the house that I live in in Hackney for the last oh, 17 years now, but from our bedroom window, there's a very good view. We're quite high up in the house and uh, there's a very good view across the city of all of the developments that have happened over the last few years, which as you know, a lot more has happened in recent years than happened to begin with. Originally, it was just the gherkin, really. It was a new structure. And now there's just a colossal mess of overlapping architecture, including the Shard, and much more recently, just finished the uh, building at 22 Bishopsgate, which is the second highest building in London. Anyway, it's a spectacular, spectacular view. And I wanted to make a film basically recording initially changes in light on this landscape. But actually nowadays, I have a problem with making work which is really just rooted in aesthetics or formal ideas because I kind of feel a responsibility for kind of politics to come into it or at least comment, you know, some sort of direct comment on, on what's happening in the world now. And uh, I'm very sad and I resent all of the right-wing people in the world which make me feel guilty or, you know, unable to make films which might be just to do with the joy of following sunlight around a room, like a film of mine from 1975 called Leading Light. I'd find it very difficult to make that film again now. So, so filming this, these buildings, I was thinking there's going to be an element in the film. It's going to start off as something which is visually aesthetic, but then I'm going to bring in possibly even a personal statement from myself actually critiquing what I'm doing. But um, since that time, I think Boris Johnson has done it for me. So in this film, I will be using speeches from Johnson, including an extraordinary speech he made in Greenwich, I think, in the beginning of February to business leaders, where he basically said, again, something that I discovered on Navarra Media, <laughs> which I watch like you, where he basically said that we can really take advantage of this coronavirus thing because while other countries are overreacting to it, we can get in, you know, and really get our economy, post-Brexit economy moving. And he makes this analogy between Britain and Superman, Clark Kent. And I'm looking at the city and I'm thinking, that's Gotham City, you know. Anyway, that's the beginning of something where basically the city represents, you know, 
business and capital and economic concerns, which of course absolutely are overriding anything to do with the value of human life. So I think we know we know already really that that agenda of herd immunity, which they kind of tried out to begin with and uh, wasn't all that popular when people realised that their granddad was going to die. They've been pretending for quite a while that herd immunity is not what they're up to, but it seems to me, call me pessimistic or cynical, but it seems to me that that's what they've been up to all along. And, and now that they're loosening the rules of the lockdown at this point, we're against all advice, which says this is much too early, I don't need to finish the sentence to I know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are lots of things I want to say in response to that. I have my opinions about the ruination of the London skyline by basically turning it into a sort of rainier, colder, greyer Qatar. You know, we could talk about the aesthetics of London changing. I think it's also interesting that you mentioned that Johnson speech in Greenwich because there is the 20, 30 years of examples of Johnson in journalism and in public speaking, saying and doing things that really should be condemning him a hundred times over. One of the speeches from, I think, 2007 from his mayoral campaign is where he's talking to business leaders in the city, saying that the hero of the film Jaws is the mayor because he keeps the beach open despite the fact that the shark is killing everybody. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny, but it's also, you know, in this current context, it's horrendous. And that speech you mentioned from Greenwich, if we had a vaguely functioning media that did the job that people like Navarra Media have been doing, then he would be on trial now, I think. Mm -hmm. Navarra have also been very good at the looking at the sabotage of the Labour Party from within in the 2017 election. And again, providing far more scrutiny to Keir Starmer than anyone in the mainstream media at the moment who are building this narrative that, you know, this is the politician that we like and we respect and is competent. And not all of us see it that way. Anyway, I think we could, um, again, our listeners probably already agree with the two of us on a lot of these subjects. So let's not go too much further on, on that particular editorialising. A lot of the things you've touched on so far link back to the work that was the first thing of yours that I saw that I think remains your best known film. A film you made in Dawson in 1976 called The Girl Chewing Gum, in which you see a shot of Stanford Road and a, a shop front and then you pan over to the Odeon cinema that was on the street at the time and you hear a, a voiceover which is the film director saying basically directing the shot or so it seems. And through the course of the film, the image and the voiceover go out of sync. And in the end, you realise that the filmmaker is not actually directing the events as such at all, but is actually responding to them and starts editorialising on them and so forth. And it's a film that takes some of the principles of the London Filmmakers Co-op and the structural film movement. The structural film movement was essentially about exploring the physical properties of film, particularly 60 millimeter film that I think a lot of the directors were working with, and demystifying film, demystifying narrative and image. But your film, The Girl Chewing Gum, does this with, I think, probably more narrative and more human than a lot of the other films that were around at the time. One of the key voices in the filmmakers' cooperative as it went into its second decade, it was established in the mid 1960s. 
and retrospectives of the filmmakers co-op often focus a lot on the first 10 years of work made at the co-op by people like Malcolm de Grice and Jill Ethely and Stephen Dwoskin and various others. But your film is, of course, a key artefact from the sort of 10-year mark of the co-op. And I think does something quite different. One of the key voices was Peter Goodall at this point, who was one of the main theorists of the co-op, was very politically committed, committed Marxist, and a film like Peter Goodall's Conditions of Illusion, which I think draws from people like Louis Althusser and other 1960s Marxist theorists. It's you know, a very interesting film, a film I value a lot, but takes its own subject matter very, very seriously. And your approach is quite different to his and to a lot of your contemporaries in the filmmakers co-op, I think. So in quite a roundabout way, I'm asking you what it was like to be involved with the filmmakers co-op at the time, what it meant for you making those films, how the political principles of the co-op came into the way you made the work and, you know, who the audience was for your films as a result. I wasn't particularly involved with the filmmakers co-op at that time, I don't think, although it's a long time ago and I, I've never kept a diary, so I'm not exactly sure when I originally got involved, but I originally got involved in working there as a projectionist and I got to see, and I was definitely still a student then, but I think it was after, just after I made Culture and Gum. Peter Goodall, who you mentioned, who was you know, a very important figure within the Filmmakers Co-op, was actually my tutor at the RCA at the time when I made Girl Chewing Gum. And Peter showed us a lot of work, much of which I liked very much, but which was, in terms of what I wanted to make myself, uh, a little bit austere. So um, I found myself in an interesting situation. And I think, just to digress slightly before I go on, I think it's very interesting that I, I'm sort of very aware that I, I think I make the films like I do because I was impressionable at a particular time in my life and a particular time in history. And I think, you know, if I was 10 years older or maybe even five years older or younger, or I probably would make very, very different work. But uh, by the time that I went to the RCA and was first starting to look at work that was coming from the co-op and things. Certainly in Britain, there was a, certainly a real preoccupation with, and this is across independent film generally, not just artist film, quite a preoccupation with Brechtian ideas to do with actually distanciation and making the viewer aware that they were looking at something which was a construction which has been a basic tenet for me throughout my career. But I wonder whether it would have been if I hadn't started making films when I did. And also semiology was a big influence at that time for many of us. But anyway, to answer your question, I hope, I really, like, uh, I think I was 22, 23 when I made Girl Chewing Gum. Like most people, I wanted to sort of fit in with what was going on at the time. <laughs> And uh, I kind of, you know, really wanted to make these kind of co-op type films. But also, most of my friends weren't actually at art school, hadn't even gone into higher education of any kind. And I wanted to make work which they would get something from without having to have a kind of art school education, without having to know any references to anything. So I think it was always right from the beginning a big concern to me to make work that was accessible. I think I was always influenced by Monty Python as, as, a, as a teenager. 
that kind of absurdist humor of juxtaposing improbable things all of that I think sort of fed into what I sort of ideas I had as well as smoking quite a lot of marijuana as well which was definitely a big part of my perception of ideas around how it's possible to see the world in lots of different ways give the world a different narrative so to speak yeah the girl chewing gum was really the first film that I wrote a voiceover for a text for and I've used the voiceover in many of my films since but having done that it was kind of no looking back really because it was the time when I really realized the power of the word and how words can so determine how we see images or even how we see what's going on on the other side of the street if somebody tells us it's something as we know somebody screaming in terror can look exactly the same as somebody laughing you know we just need the caption and that actually lets us know what it is we're looking at. So I was very much playing with that in the gold chewing gum, telling people what they were looking at. And I guess that use of a, of a voiceover to determine or to tell a story about an image which is other than its, its original meaning has become a common thing now. But at the time when I made the film, I hadn't seen any example of anything like that. So... I surprised myself in a way at how successful it was in actually making the viewer, although not believe, actually have something close to believing. I, I was fascinated by the fact that the power of language is so strong in terms of creating images in our mind that we can imagine that somebody with a walking down the street with his hand in his pocket in a raincoat has just robbed the post office, as I say about him. There's a scene and towards the end of the film, I start talking about where I really am or, or might be. And the voice appears to have come clean about what's going on. And I say, um, I'm actually in the middle of a field, 15 miles from the building you're looking at. Uh, in the distance, I can see a middle-aged man in a brown duffel coat. He's got a dog with him, which looks like a Labrador. And I think he's got a helicopter in his pocket. Um, the basis of, of that statement was to do with the fact which I think I'm pretty right in assuming is that when you hear that description you start to visualize something so when you're told that somebody has a helicopter in his pocket you don't immediately dismiss it you think the helicopter is pocket helicopters are too it's ridiculous you know it must be a toy helicopter or something like that so I'm fascinated that the power of language is so strong that even in that film where you know you're being manipulated, you know you're being lied to, there's still this residual kind of wish to believe. Or I, I always say that films about the beginnings of my love-hate relationship with the power of language, because of course that can be used for good purposes or bad. But I hope the film doesn't sound too jokey because it's a very serious film about basically about the power of the way in which a voiceover can be used in a documentary or captions can be used in newspapers to tell us what Jeremy Corbyn really is underneath that smile. Yeah, he looks nice, but he's going to like recruit all your children for Hezbollah. Absolutely. <laughs> don't don't Absolutely. fall for the don't fall for the fact that he's like a kindly old granddad who makes jam because you know actually <laughs> Uh, there was an amazing cover of the New European paper, which was one of the most facile of the many new centrist publications where they had the headline saying, like, the man behind the mask. And it was Jeremy Corbyn taking off a mask of Jeremy Corbyn's face to reveal <laughs> Jeremy Corbyn's face underneath it. It's genuinely, 
one of the <laughs> most preposterous news images I've ever seen. But anyway, um, you mentioned accessibility there, and you also mentioned Monty Python, which I like because I, I showed my dad a bit of the girl chewing gum once, and his first response was, it reminds me of Monty Python. So in the 1980s, you and a number of other filmmakers who were part of what I would call the second wave of the London Filmmakers Co-op, people who came through in the 70s, like William Raban, for example, his work I'm a big fan of. You know, lots of you worked with television or either had your films commissioned by BBC Two or Channel Four or made work that was funded by bodies like the Arts Council and then shown on television. I wonder if we could talk a bit about what it was like to work with those TV networks, like what compromises you maybe had to make or what you're allowed to do whether you felt you were reaching a wider audience and whether reaching that audience was worth any changes that you had to make to your way of working well actually the first film i made for tv was only just after i left the royal college in 1978 before i think it may well have been the first artist film ever shown on television but just to give you an idea of how things have changed, there was a fairly radical lefty producer at Thames Television, which was the you know, London-based ITV channel, showed nationally, I think, but it was based in London. This guy called Udi Eichler, and he was the producer of a series that they decided to make called Take Six, which showed six half-hour films made by people who hadn't directed anything for television before. And that was the only thing that connected them. So the six films that they commissioned in the first series were one from me, one from somebody else, another guy from Royal College called Dave Wheatley, a couple of films by National Film School graduates, and a couple of films by people who um, had worked in the industry, but maybe were working as like a production manager at Thames or something like that, and it was to give them an opportunity. It was only years later I realised that actually at that time, I'm not sure what it's like now, but going to a Royal College, opportunities came out of it. So basically the producer contacted the Royal College, said, we're doing this series, have you got any student, ex-people who have recently graduated who might be interested in making a film for us? So this guy approached me and uh, said, would you be interested in proposing an idea for a documentary? From what I was talking about, Girl Chewing Gum, I was sort of rather anti the idea of documentary. And also they needed an idea in, in a few, a couple of weeks. And ideas usually come to me pretty slowly. But I just shot a film called Hackney Marshes, which was, um, coming back to visual aesthetics, was a kind of animation of matched framings of tower blocks on Hackney Marshes, tower blocks and goalposts. And the, so we're using the animation principle to make, you know, static objects appear to move. I just shot that and I thought, hmm, maybe I could make an anti-documentary that relates to tower block living, because at that time, it was the time when these, what had been utopian idea for housing in the late 60s, even by 1978, it was really falling apart. And, you know, there were lots of burglaries and serious issues anyway. So um, anyway, I, I made this film, which was sort of, I say it's an anti-documentary because I interviewed people, asking them about their experience. And like everybody, they have good and bad things to say about a place. And unlike most mainstream documentaries that want to make a point, I included the bad and the good things that individual people say. So 
I was sort of making people contradict each other and there's lots of visual devices and um, anyways I could easily be boring about this the important thing is that this film which has lots of kind of very structural film like cutting and uh, things like that and these fragments of interviews I've got people reading their own scripts of things that they've said themselves and it's an experimental film but this, the context of this film was it was showed at six o'clock in the evening on Thames TV to 10 million or however many people, many people there are watched that network in London. While the news program called Thames at Six was taking its summer break. So instead of the news, you've got my experimental film. All the other films in the series were conventional documentaries. And I thought, oh, this is great. I mean, this opportunity to put this film out in the world because it's really going to shake things up, you know, I'm going to get, I was, I, was, I was waiting for all these responses to the work. What happened was that a week or two after the screening, the, I met up with the producer and he said, he said, oh, we got this letter about your film. And he gave it to me. And I read this letter on like a little piece of Basildon Bond notepaper in a kind of spidery hand. And in the, uh, in the letter it says, Bear in mind that this film is about, I'm trying to undermine the illusion of film. So I want people to be aware that they're looking at the construction. The first line of the letter says, we were watching your film, Hackney Marshes, and we were taken into a tall building. And the lady in one of the flats showed us the alarm lock on her door. We've had a bit of bother recently and we've tried in all the shops, but we can't get one anywhere. I just wonder if you could let us know where I can get it. <laughs> so in terms of my radical shake-up of television, I got a letter, <laughs> which was, you know, and then of course I had to ring up for being a nice person. <laughs> I rang the woman who had the alarm lock and said, where did you get the lock? And I can't remember whether I managed to tell the people or not actually in the end, but anyway. That made me realise very early on that, you know, you really have to do a lot to shake up television. There's a story much later on when they showed my film The Black Tower, which has about eight minutes of black or just colour in it. Channel 4 that showed that in 1988 were inundated with complaints, with people phoning in and saying, What's going on? My telly's, you know, is the screen all red or black or I can't see anything? Why didn't you warn us before the programme was transmitted? You know, and it's people completely irate. And they, they sent me the duty log. I must publish it sometime because it's, it's a typewritten log. You know, at that time, people would phone in and, the, and, people, and they would be transcribed by people on the switchboards. So it made me realise how much you needed to do to shake things up. I have to say, I was pretty pissed off later on when Derek Jarman made Blue and nobody seemed to make a fuss at all about him, the fact that it was uh, there was no image on the screen. But uh, <laughs> I guess anyway. the fact that there was still music and voiceover meant they, uh, they knew their telly wasn't on the blink. <laughs> That's yeah. right. There are, some, there are some disruptive things in the soundtrack as well in the Black Tower, I have to say. Uh, uh. In fact, I, actually, I didn't say the first film of mine that was ever shown on television, even before that, was in 1975 which is a film called Associations, which plays on puns on words to do with word associations. And that film, the screen is black a lot of the time and images flash up in sync with words to represent alternative meanings. So for example, the voice reading is, 
linguistic texts about associations when he says he might talk about language comprehension and production and in sync with him saying comprehension in sync with hen you see an image of a hen and in sync with production you see an image of a duck and production so it plays with these sorts of things the screen is black a lot of the time and um, bbc2 transmitted that on a it was a student film show again when i was at the royal college of art called the first picture show they insisted that they had to cut the beginning of the film because there were two minutes of black without any images at the beginning and they told me that the transmitters actually shut down if they're not receiving a visual signal after a certain amount of time but i don't know maybe they were just lying to make me to placate me when, and trying to get me to agree with what they wanted to do but that thing of showing on tv is strange because i guess you know lots of films showed on television over the years and to begin with, it's a real, such an anticlimax because you're not in the room with the people. And makes me think about when I first made films, I was perfectly happy for maybe a film to be shown to 15, 20 people at the filmmaker's co-op. And uh, well, we'd have a good discussion about the work afterwards, probably. But that was kind of enough. So when you know that your film is going to be shown, rewatched by you know, 100,000 people simultaneously, the idea of that is quite exciting, but of course, it's actually a complete anticlimax when it happens. The only good thing is that years and years later, it's, I realise it's a very slow burn thing. I still meet people now who say, oh, I see you made the black towel. I saw that on television when I was 15 and I've never forgotten it. You know, it's like, I didn't, it's, it's really nice, that retrospective thing, which doesn't worry me anymore, but it used to really be a downer for me. That, oh, all this work into this thing and uh, of course I've always had the rights to the work and been able to show it myself afterwards so it's not that it was a you know just about broadcast by any means but um, yeah and obviously I think during the 1990s and into the 2000s you know, BBC2 and Channel 4 started showing and commissioning a lot less of that work they still do some actually particularly Channel 4 have their like random act strand it's not disappeared entirely but there's certainly far far less of it and, you know, BBC Four, which is very much under threat at the moment, has also, particularly in the last decade, been a great disappointment in terms of showing and commissioning this kind of work. I talked a bit about this with uh, Jeremy Deller on the last episode of this programme. But certainly your work during the 2000s, you know, moved away from bigger like, Arts Council funded projects and work with or for television and more towards things that you could make just on your own with a camera with a smaller budget either in standard definition or eventually in high definition i'd like to talk now about a series of films you made throughout the 2000s called the hotel diaries which were i think single shot films of you talking all except to... one are single shots yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So they're mostly single shot films of you talking to camera in hotel rooms so maybe you could tell our audience about the form of the films and how that how the restrictions you set for yourself shaped the content and the political content of the films because they are very much informed by what was happening politically during the war on terror. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. They, they're, they're made between 2001 and 2007. So they basically sort of cover the kind of the war on terror. So I said war on terror without putting inverted commas on it. <laughs> the so-called war on terror within the Blair and Bush era. So I actually stopped uh, making them at the point when Blair had gone and it looked like Obama was about to be elected. And I 
I wanted to be optimistic, so I decided that I'd stop making these grim uh, pieces at that time. But um, it was a series of videos that came about, uh, in fact, by accident. In a way, I should just to go back, step back a couple of steps. You know, you were saying I make lower budget work now. That's largely because I used to work on 16mm, which required, even though the cost of the film, and most of my films are only materials, the materials were very expensive in working with films. So I was completely dependent on applying for funding. Since the advent of digitals come along, you know, I have my own equipment. I'm lucky enough to have my own equipment. So in terms of the actual making of the work, because I work on my own almost always, uh, there's very little cost to the work, which suits me. Anyway, so that's, that's one of the reasons that there's this difference in, in budget. But the Hotel Diaries videos came about because I don't do quite so much now, but I used to visit film festivals a lot. And once very small, quite good quality digital video cameras appeared, I would take my little digital camera with me uh, in case I wanted to film something. So in 2001, I was at the uh, Cork Film Festival in Ireland in October on the, uh, when American Britain started bombing Afghanistan. And I um, was rather, like, a, like often happens if one goes to a film festival, I'd stayed out very late talking and drinking with people at the festival. And uh, when I went back to my hotel room at like 1.30 in the morning, I was very curious and apprehensive to um, turn on my TV in the hotel room and see uh, and watch the closest I could get to some kind of news of what's going on, which was BBC News 24 at that time. So I turn on the TV and when I turned on the TV, the image on the TV screen was in the middle with a, of an interview with somebody, a, a Tory politician, for some reason a Tory, even though it was 2001. And there was a caption on the screen saying, um, second night of bombing in Afghanistan, targets in Kabul and Jalalabad have been hit. But the image on the TV screen was frozen and the clock had stopped at 1.41. And... I don't know whether it was because I'd actually been in America on 9-11 and actually woken up, flown out of New York on September the 10th to Chicago and then woken up in Chicago on 9-11 to see the World Trade Center being attacked live on TV. So this is, you know, less than a month previously to that. But I got very paranoid about what I was looking at and thinking, why is the TV image frozen? You know, has there been a there been a bomb in London or something? And, you know, simultaneously I'm thinking, fucking hell, what a comfortable life you live that, you know, you are disturbed by the fact that your TV image is frozen, where I knew that actually at that moment there were, my country was dropping bombs on innocent civilians in Afghanistan. So I just got my cam video camera out and started talking about things that were going through my head. And I filmed the static screen and talked about all these different contradictions and somehow the film ends up on the, one of those useless things that you put suitcases in, on in hotels. And I sort of wander off into talking about privilege and the uselessness of in hot, how hotels we have these ridiculous things to put suitcases on for fuck's sake. You know, what's that all about? So it's a kind of, there's a kind of dark humour there as well. But um, anyway, I've probably gone on a bit too much. Basically, I ended up over the next six years making a series of seven videos each shot in different countries, each shot in different hotel rooms, where I 
relate my own inconsequential adventures of the day or the day before to something that might have happened in relation to the wars in the Middle East and Afghanistan over the period that I was actually there. So these are videos that are kind of planned and shot on the day and vitally important they're shot in hotel rooms that I didn't choose that I've been put in this hotel room in this temporary home for a day or more maybe and I use in each of the videos I use the hotel room as a found film set and I use the furnishings and the architecture and the pictures on the wall in these hotel rooms to give them some kind of metaphorical significance and to make links between my own everyday personal very dull experience and the very important things that might have happened in the wider world and i would just make those videos if something happened that actually triggered them like for example i was in switzerland when yasser arafat died so i thought i've got to make a piece which is to do with yasser arafat dying i it so happened on the night that arafat died on the night before i got locked out of my hotel room and i knew that Arafat had been actually trapped in his compound until eventually the Israelis let him fly off to military hospital in Paris where he died. So I made this kind of parallel between you know, my reverse incarceration and Arafat's incarceration. And it goes off in different, different directions. But the, the videos, I guess, in a way for me, they're quite cathartic. They've all got a rather dodgy kind of humor to them i have to say you know i mean that which is kind of deliberate but for me that what was important was trying to make them as something films that look like anybody could have made them and also because i don't have any profound things to say but i'm responding to most things kind of emotionally more than anything else really in a way i'm very predictable armchair socialist response i give to the events that have happened I make these videos in a way that they're very rough and ready, handheld, automatic camera. Doesn't look like they've necessarily been made by a filmmaker. And hopefully that makes them less didactic and it enables me to rant on about the things that I hate that are going on in the world in the hope that other people will have some kind of empathy with them. So I very much enjoyed showing those videos around the world uh, after I made them and, and during as well because... They ended up as a feature-length piece that I normally show them all together now. They have a kind of cumulative effect. But while I was making them, I'd show them one by one. And uh, it was really interesting going to festivals and venues in other countries and showing them and having dialogues with people from other places and seeing how they responded to them. My most memorable experience actually was going to a film festival in the Jongju Film Festival in South Korea and showing the diaries there. And I think they showed them at like one in the morning. And it's a very slow piece. So, and I thought everybody's going to fall asleep. But um, and she was a very, very attentive audience, of mainly young Koreans and a very big audience. And after screening, I did a Q&A. And the first question was somebody said, so um, how do you think we should deal with Kim Jong-il? <laughs> <laughs> Talk about unexpected. <laughs> or was it Kim Jong? Who was it? It was Kim Jong Il. I, I always get the Kim Jongs muddled up. Anyway, the dead one, the one, not, not the current one, the one before. How are South Korea going to deal with this guy? 
<laughs> so my whole thing of like, I don't have any answers to anything was sort of transferred by some a member of the audience wanting to know my wisdom <laughs> about how, to, how I could solve the, the partition of Korea. Um, have, you, have you come across any of Kim Jong-un's uh, film theory? No, I haven't. He, um, no, I he published, published a volume of film theory in the mid eighties. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, yeah. No, he was a big. He was an absolute film enthusiast, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, um, I've I've had that on my hard drive forever, and do you know what? The occasion to actually read it has never really come up. But um, <laughs> maybe sometime, sometime during the lockdown, you know, I've got a bit of free time in my hands, so maybe, maybe the time has finally come for a sweet two one two on uh, Kim Jong Un's <laughs> film theory. But anyway, I'd like to move the conversation on a little bit further. You know, we could talk about all sorts of your works because you've made so many over the last, uh, well, nearly 50 years. But I'd like to talk a bit about the two of the films you made in response to Brexit. So there's a film you made called A Song for Europe in 2017, short film. And in particular, the one that caught my attention was a film you made in 2016 called Who Are We? And this takes an audience for BBC Question Time. And I think Question Time is a particularly interesting program in terms of the you know the kind of manufacturing of consent in this country that we we talked about at the top of the show you know because it sort of it poses as an occasion where the public gets to talk directly to politicians which they do I think it's an increasingly stage managed program it's a show that I find unwatchable basically and you know the nature of who is in the audience for those programs has increasingly been contested since Brexit I think if not before and I think Question Time is also an interesting example of just how bad the political discourse is in this country. I'm thinking back to a a really brilliant blog post I read by the music writer Neil Kolkarni in the run-up to the EU referendum, I think the week of it, where he compares the BBC's coverage of the 1975 referendum around the common market with the 2016 referendum. And obviously in the 70s, you have all these people on the BBC calmly and casually describing and discussing the economic benefits of joining or not joining the common market. Whereas in 2016, you have lots of people yelling the words, no, you're Hitler, at each other. And then Jeremy Corbyn sort of came out and said, well, actually, this is a bit more nuanced and a bit more complicated. Everyone said, no, you're Hitler. But, um, (laughs) you know, who are we re-edits some of the question time footage? I think it's an episode with Caroline Lucas, David Davis, Ed Miliband and others. So maybe we could talk a bit about that film and like how you edited that footage, why you chose the footage that you did. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was originally made, actually, I made it, bef- I, I tweaked it after the referendum, but I originally made it before the referendum. And I made it using material from a question time from Ipswich about a month before the referendum. Uh, and like you, I find it very, very hard to watch question time. It's something that I would make myself watch as it got progressively worse and worse but i i kind of felt okay i've got to watch this to get a sense of what some people are thinking that i maybe i wouldn't normally be talking to so i'd always make myself watch it i have to say i cannot now watch it with fiona bruce doing it but to make me nostalgic for dimbleby is extraordinary i don't know (laughs) Um, like a lot of things, like those lovely old lovable Tory politicians we used to have. But uh, I was watching uh, this particularly rabid version of Question Time where almost everybody was a kind of really strongly in favour of Brexit, shall we say, without making any valid judgments about them. 
and one after the other people uh, were coming out with these to me ridiculous um, statements about Europe and at a certain point in the program Dimbleby pointed to somebody in the audience and he said and we have a question from you sir up on the far right and sure enough there was a very very far right question so I thought I would make a kind of pro-remain little video piece that I put out on put out into the world at that time on Vimeo and contacted lots of people about it where I I take that little piece of Dimbleby saying you sir on the far right before cutting to each far right question and then it cuts at the end to Miliband I think it was um, Ed Miliband's kind of first public appearance really since he since he'd been Labour leader and Miliband is sort of interrogating David Davis who at the time was the Brexit secretary saying uh, so what is what's it going to be like what's it going to be like after Brexit is it going to be like Romania is it going to be like Finland is it going to be like Sweden is it going to be like Albania and David Davis says the country it's going to be like is Great Britain and the audience a large part of the audience erupted into tumultuous applause and it was that uh, it was just so painful that I've got to do something with this. So I ended up cutting it in the way in which I described. I looped David Davis going, Great Britain, Great Britain, Great Britain. And, uh, and somebody else going, get our identity back, get our identity back. And I originally called it, it ended up being called Who Are We? But originally it was called Give Them Enough Europe, as in Give Them Enough EU Rope. But then when I realised that I was a member of the metropolitan elite after the election, I decided I would have to change the title and try and soften it up a little bit. <laughs> so uh, and at that point, I added, I changed the title to Who Are We? and asked that question in a way. And the film is bookended by the wide shot of the audience at question time who are like staring at camera and trying to ask the question, Who Are We? Who Are We as a nation? You know, we're not all the same. I guess I've said enough about describe that enough really. <laughs> yeah, I mean it was it was a really interesting film to watch because yeah, like like you, I mean I I really well I never liked watching Question Time, but it was long before even the 2015 election that I started refusing to watch it because I just couldn't stomach it. And obviously one of the things that the EU referendum did was really remind us of the power of the media. You know, Brexit was something that was really brought about by four or five newspapers more than anything. And promoted up and up the agenda and BBC Question Time in particular, of course, having a pivotal role in the rise of Nigel Farage. I mean, I really remember watching the Question Time episode with Nick Griffin and this myth building up that being on Question Time had somehow destroyed the BNP, which really it was far more complicated than that. And we won't go into that. Listeners can go and read Daniel Trilling's excellent book, Bloody Nasty People, for a, a more nuanced history of the British National Party. But you know, I remember watching Farage on Question Time and immediately thinking, oh, fuck, they've cracked it. They've managed to find a way of presenting far-right ideas, which is on the surface divorced from the violence of the political movement it's associated with. They found a way of presenting this as like a respectable thing for liberals that could be presented through Question Time. And then, of course, he was on every week. And, you know, Brexit was a real reminder of the power of the media, which, of course, then was you know, an illusion partly shattered by the 2017 election when it, I certainly felt, well, actually, you know, we've managed to find a way of cutting through the power of this media, through building a mass movement, through door knocking and canvassing. And then, of course, we tried that again in 2019 and found that, you know, the media had really upped its game and found a way of sort of making sure that we just couldn't win the ground war in the face of this sort of 
aerial bombardment. You know, I think one of the interesting things about the Corbyn period and one of the things that really interested me about his leadership of the Labour Party was actually a sort of similar thing that interested me about your films in a funny way. The you know, the realisation as soon as Corbyn became Labour leader that this was going to demystify a lot of things about British politics, that Corbyn would be occupying this important position within the political discourse, holding the opinions he held, and pretty much all media commentators, people within the Labour Party, in particular the Parliamentary Party, but also the party bureaucracy, uh, as well as people on the right, would respond to, you know, pretty mild social democracy, really. I mean, certainly somebody who, when you came to politics in the 70s, was not out of the ordinary at all, and would respond by really showing us the sort of true nature of the stitch-up between the bureaucracies of the two major parties and the media and the financial sector. I do feel that, if nothing else, Corbyn's leadership did do that. And it's quite interesting to think about what might happen next with this generation of people. And, you know, you and even I, I think, relatively old within that political movement. But to think about what might, what might happen next in the wake of it. And I'm sure, you know, you will continue to make work and I will continue to make these uh, radio shows and... Um, you know, the government's shambolic handling of the coronavirus crisis that you've been documenting in your film recently. You know, who knows, it might even cut through to more people, but who knows what's going to happen next. There is so much unknown. It really is. And it... it's a... I try not to, actually, because I'm not, a, I'm not a very optimistic person, I have to say. I don't know if it's to do with not having children, but I've, you know, mm. I've, I've been convinced was going to end before long anyway before any of this happened you know and it's got so much worse over the last and now of course with what's happening in america the last few days i mean it's uh, it's hard to if i was a hippie i would say i had something to do with the planets you know i mean it really is extraordinary all of this and it's also been been a long time coming and it you know brings back the uh, the famous lenin dictum doesn't it about uh, there being decades where nothing happens and then weeks where decades happen um, <laughs> and it feels like 2020 is going to be a year where centuries happen anyway <laughs> anyway i think maybe we should uh, we should leave it there i've done a lot of editorializing in this episode already and i probably shouldn't <laughs> do any more um, john it's been an absolute joy to have you on the show thanks so much for joining me today thank you i've really enjoyed it thanks a lot me too listeners we'll be back soon with more of these sessions i don't have anything confirmed yet but i'm lining up a few of these other interviews but in the meantime you can find us on twitter at sweet underscore 212 you can find me at zinoviev letter you can listen to the show on soundcloud.com slash sweet dash 212 you can donate to the show if you so wish at patreon.com slash sweet 212 i've been your host juliet jakes thanks a lot for listening take care goodbye <laughs>